Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I've been off for a couple of weeks traveling, discussing the issues of the day, but I'm glad to be back. And I'm very excited today to have as my guest, Professor Andrea Katz, Associate Professor of Law at Washington University um, Law School. Um, Andrea has a master's, I'm sorry, has a bachelor's, JD, and PhD in political science, all from Yale University. Uh, she clerked for the European Court of, of Human Rights and a district court judge in Massachusetts. She's an expert on presidential power, comparative law, constitutional law, constitutional design, and I'm really happy to have you here today. Thanks for being here. No, oh, thank you, Eric. Too generous. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm excited to be here. This is actually my very first podcast. Oh, how exciting. So, um, Excellent. It'll, yeah. be, it'll be easy. Yeah. Um, and you and I, we should tell the audience, you and I were just, uh, where were we, in Minnesota together, talking about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We may or may not get to that. We'll see. So you really are an expert in, in, in pretty much all things presidential power, including, and you're kind of, you know, this is rare, comparative law when it comes to presidential power. How did you get interested in that topic? How you stake out your claim there? How come? Yeah, it's partly biographical, right? I think a lot of us have some kind of formative events, maybe in our childhood that shapes our research interests. So uh, my mom's Latin American, she's from Uruguay. So I, you know, grew up speaking Spanish and you know, the South exists uh, kind of thing was always a theme in our house. Um, I went to college and I was actually a Latin American literature major. Um, uh, and uh, while in college, I was kind of, you know, all over the place in my interests. I ended up taking a class called the Dictator Novel um, with this uh, amazing eccentric professor, Moira Fradinger at Yale. And um, we read we read all these these novels that are kind of like about the psychology of the person with absolute power, you know. So like Mario Vargas Llosa, The Feast of the Goat, um, Garcia Marquez wrote one one of his lesser less famous novels, The Autumn of the Patriarch. Anyway, it's all they're all super dark, uh, you know, kind of morbid. The sort of corrosive effect on the psychology that holding absolute power has on a person. Um, it's a little bit kind of maybe a little bit Tony Soprano, I guess. <laughs> Um, I'm not, I'm not a, a president phobe by any means, but I did uh, become kind of obsessed with executive power um, so, after that. Um, so you know, I think that there's something yeah. kind of tragic and, and dangerous about the office, even in the U.S., which is obviously a lot more stable compared to some of these contexts. Well, it may or may not be more stable. We'll find out in a year. Um, I'm not as confident about that as you are. Um, obviously, our president doesn't have absolute power. Um, I think most presidents wish they had that, but they do not have absolute power. I take it presidents in, in other countries have something similar to that, even democratically elected presidents? Well, I mean, yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's a good question. So ju just as far as the dictator novel stuff concerned, I mean, some of these are, you know, a lot of these are fictionalized. Some of them are based on actual uh, power holders. So... Um, you know, um, General Trujillo in the Dominican Republic, for example, was one of these presidents that sort of elected democratically, but then keeps kind of eroding checks and balances. And, right. And, and, and I will uh, say I was just I was just power. I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just in the Dominican Republic a few months ago. It is a wonderfully beautiful place. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if, if the, the novel is anything to go by, I wouldn't have wanted to be there at this at the time. Yeah. This guy was was in power. Yeah. But uh, yes, agree to the natural <laughs> beauty. Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a sliding spectrum. I, I think when it comes to the sort of psychological weight that the office has on a person, mm -hmm. the fact that you're embedded in a system of checks and balances might not actually be that comforting. I right. think I think we in the U.S. are a little bit um, 
disingenuous about how much we look to the president for our cues to make politics, to tell us that it's going to be okay, you know, to have a direction for the country and actually come through on it uh, in ways that obviously, uh, you know, are at odds with the actual checks and balances on the presidency. So I think that from a psychological point of view, we can't quite get away from this like great man symptom. Of course, the president is more boxed in, thankfully, than in some of these other contexts. A, a couple of observations. Um, first, I love the fact mm -hmm. that you're talking about the psychology of this, and, and it's only because a lot of my work on the Supreme Court is about this, like, is about what happens when you give a person effectively unrevealable power for life. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I don't want to get back, I don't want to sidetrack into that, but I, I've talked a lot about that. Um, I have to mention Judge Posner once, a, once an episode is kind of a rule, and Judge Posner was interested in that psychology too, um, during many of our, our conversations. Um, but I want to ask, what I really want to ask you though, is there's a professor at UNLV who has written a series of articles that no one takes seriously, but I do, that talks about how America really should have two presidents. And leaving aside that that's never going to happen, his point is we have put the power of the ceremonial head of state, the monarch in England, alongside the power or, or, or in the same person as the power to run the government. And that's too much power for one person, too much power for one office. It's a terrible idea. Um, I take it you have some sympathy for that view. I don't know this, this, the, the, these articles. David like, or his name is David Ortlikenhart. I can't pronounce his last name. O-R-T. David, and, and he's at Nevada, Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. He, he's, this has oh, been yeah, a big yeah, deal of his that. for years. Ah, that's cool. Yeah. yeah uh, sign me up. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, I think I would think about it not so much that it's too much power for one person to handle, but actually the idea that the two roles conflict, being the head of state, that sort of ceremonial King of England kind of head of state thing, and then being the head of government, I think they actually really work at cross purposes. So uh, I remember a couple years ago, a piece came out about how Obama, when he gave this uh, State of the Union address, and one of the congresspersons, Joe, Joe Wilson, screams, you lie, right. right, at him. And how this was like a big moment because it really seemed to be like an assault on the dignity of the presidency, right? The president is like standing up at this like lectern above, right, all the Congress people. Um, and and what, what I think that episode really reflected is the president as head of state, you know, setting the tone for the nation, the state of the union uh, versus being like more, you know, as if this were, um, um, the House of Commons in England, right, where they frequently insult their prime minister, attack, combat. So I think that the president combines the two roles. And I think that particularly in our party system, as our parties get more polarized, the sort of dignity that the head of state needs, it's, 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 it's zapped, you know, it's, it's being continually undermined. So yeah, I've obviously got to read these pieces. Uh, a, a head of state who like pardons the turkeys on Thanksgiving. Yes. And yes. somebody else who's actually in charge of like running the show legis legislatively. Yes. I think that is a good way to do things. So, so when you say that, I, I, you're you're too young for this because I'm ancient, but I think back to Ronald Reagan, and I think mm -hmm. he honestly would have been a great, you know, head of state with no no responsibility at all because he could give a speech, he could he could make people cry, he could make people laugh. He was really good at it. He really was. But yeah. he sucked, in my opinion. He sucked at being president. It would be nice to. It's, it, you're right. It's two different skills. And sometimes they're in this. I think President Obama had a lot of both. I think he was a good administrator and a, and a good leader. But that's, I think, the exception, not the rule. Um, and I, 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 I uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll send you his, the link to David's article. They're really interesting. 
Um, and, and people have a tendency to dismiss it as, well, well that would never happen in the country. But his real contribution is showing how out of line it is to give all these powers to one person, which I take it is consistent with a lot of what you're saying. Um, all right, let's, let's talk about American con law for a second, then we'll get to comparative law. So this unitary executive theory that is all the rage. Can you, uh, you know, knowing that our audience is law professors, lawyers, and lay folks, can you explain what that is, whether you have sympathy for it, if you think it's dangerous, tell us everything we need to know about the unitary executive. Okay, the unitary executive in a nutshell. <laughs> Um, yes, in a no, I'm not a fan. Before I explain, I'm, okay. I'm not a fan. Okay. Um, I think there's there's a separate, there's kind of a historical claim that, well, let me start with what it is. Okay. Uh, the unitary executive theory is basically a, a, a brief, a legal brief for, for placing the president above statutes um, on the theory that Article II powers, you know, defeat statutes that meddle in the affairs of the executive branch. Um, I think the unitary executive basically envisions the executive branch as a pyramid, right? Yes. Uh, the president sits at the top and everyone below is supposed to be accountable to the president. This despite the fact, of course, that the president has to nominate 4,000 people <laughs> once they get to office and that there's, you know, above 2 million people working in the federal government. But in any case, the idea is, is this very, uh, I should say, intuitively plausible, neat, simplified idea of the executive branch of the pyramid. Um, and so one of the kind of core like legal points is that that means that the president needs to be able to fire everybody, right? Um, you know, Justice Scalia famously wrote, the executive power is vested in the presidency. That means not some of the executive power, it means all of it. Of course, right? I'm sorry, I just have to interrupt real quickly. Victoria, yeah. Nur Victoria Nurse at Georgetown has done a fabulous job of so showing that just, she was on my, my podcast uh, a few months ago or a year ago. Um, she's done a great job of showing how Scalia just that, that for, for a textualist, the doesn't mean all. <laughs> I mean, it just, I mean, it might, but it takes a step to get there, which Scalia doesn't take. Right, right, right. Scalia's opinion, yeah, this is his dissent in Morrison yes. versus Olson, comes close to saying that like the constitution best all of the executive yes. power yes. and just as the and and I agree with nurse I think that that's a that's putting a lot of weight on the yes. you know this <laughs> tiny little word but you know we know that, that that this court is is really interpolating the the word a and the word the <laughs> so yeah so it's not that unusual but anyway um yeah so I think that the unitary executive theory has this nice plausibility to it right um, the president has to take care that the law is faithfully executed. And how can you take care if you can't trust your subordinates? So, so I think all of that gives the theory a lot of facial plausibility, which is partly why I think it's very nefarious. Um, I think there's a historical case for the unitary executive and then a normative case, which is separate, which is do we want this unitary executive? Um, I've written a little bit about this. I think the historical case is way worse than the normative um, case. Um, for, for a couple reasons, um, the Supreme Court's formalism today, right, this crudely, this notion that we have legislative power, we have executive power, we have judicial power, they're cognizable categories, they're separated, right? Um, this is a fiction, like the original Supreme Court was not formalist this way. In fact, we know, right, um, the Federalist Papers said that this idea that the three powers had to be completely distinct from each other, they call that trite, right? So so even for Madison and Hamilton, the idea that our government requires pure watertight separations, not not an original idea, right? In fact, it's, it's a lot more plausible to say that we were a republic of statutes at the beginning, right? Congress, 
created all sorts of agencies and it kept some of them out of the president's hands. Um, so Christine Chabot, who's now at um, Marquette, um, she's done some fabulous work on, on early American history, showing that there were a number of independent regulatory uh, agencies who President Washington couldn't control, right? Including something called the Sinking Fund Commission, which distributed money and again, was mostly in judicial hands. The president couldn't touch it. Andrew, let's slow down, um, for, let's, let's slow down for one second because what you're saying is so important. I, I want to make sure the, the non-lawyers here understand what's at stake here. There are a lot of things at stake, but what you're alluding to now yeah. is this idea. So the Federal Trade Commission today, the Federal Communications Commission, all of these independent agencies, the Roberts Court is clearly trying to weaken them. Um, and there are five self-identified originalists on the Roberts Court. They don't seem to care about this history that at the very beginning, there were these type of agencies. They, uh, their their knee-jerk reaction would be, no, there wasn't. This started after the New Deal. But that's not true. And I think Nick Bagley and... Um, um, and I'm having a senior moment, my friend's name, at Michigan, wrote a long article um, on, on, on at the founding. There were all these agencies doing really important things. And so, yeah, so as an original matter, you agree with uh, Julian Mortenstern and Nick Bagley. Their position okay. is, as an original matter, the idea that the unitary executive theory is, a, uh, is based in history is just wrong. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think you, you mentioned Mortenstern. I mean, you know, he... It, I think the current court has this idea that the executive power is this sort of like almost solid core, you know, plutonium or whatever you want to yes. imagine, right? Uh, it's a core and you can't whittle away at this thing by statutes, right? That's unconstitutional. Uh, that's meddling Article 1 and Article 2's kind of sandbox. Um, I think what Mortensen has showed, which is really important, is that for the framers, this original idea of what executive power was, was actually subject to statutory control. And that's so far from our understanding today. That just shows, I think, how complete the Supreme Court's kind of victory over our imagination has been. <laughs> that's um, a great line. The Supreme Court's victory. That applies to so much of con law. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, I, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, we should write something on that. Yes. Um, the, the other thing that I think is also ahistorical about the unitary executive, and this is something that I've written about, um, this idea that the take care clause it, it constitutes an affirmative grant of power to enforce the laws in the way that the president wants to see them executed, right? This is actually um, a new idea, right? So, so Justice Kagan dissenting in the Sailor Law case says, when did, we, when did take care that the laws be faithfully executed mean the president gets to execute them in a way that's different from what Congress right. intends, right? right. And, and I think that, that phenomenon, this sort of splitting of the two ideas um, it only makes sense if the president is taking orders from somebody else other than Congress, right? And this, as I've attempted to show, this only makes sense starting in the 20th century, right? The president starts taking orders kind of directly from the people in the early 20th century. This is the time when primaries start to be experimented with for, for presidential nominations. Uh, it's the time when presidents start giving public speeches. You know, you can think of Teddy Roosevelt riding on the back of railroads. Presidents actually start campaigning for themselves, right? right. Before that, it was considered embarrassing groveling uh, to campaign. Um, presidents start to control press coverage. So in other words, it becomes possible, and it's really a technological point, for the president to say, the people want me to do this, despite what Congress wants. And that, I think, is when you start to see this idea that the take care clause 
kind of gives uh, authority for this independent presidential will. But again, bottom line, this is the opposite of original, you know. Um, so, so, uh, so, so, right. so, so let's. Yeah. So, so I once had Mike Ramsey and Jed Sugarman on the on, on here together debating this issue. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I think Mike Ramsey is very, very thoughtful and a really excellent scholar and a great guy. I think he's wrong on this issue. Um, I, I, I think this history, I think you've, you've gone through it and we could spend another 45 minutes doing this, but I think it's clear the unitary executive theory does not come from an original understanding of the Constitution. You said when you started this conversation, but there's a normative argument too. So, so where, yeah. where do you come down on the norm? So that, that's, you know, you, I think neither you nor, I'm not an originalist. I don't think you're an originalist. So as a normative matter, what do you think is wrong or, or good about the unitary executive theory? Right. I mean, and I think this is probably kind of very in line with the way that you see things as well. If the if the text and the history are not super clear, yeah. then how should we interpret these texts? And I think the answer is in a way that's good for democracy, right? So I think clearly the text and the history don't prevent us from adopting uh, something like a unitary executive, if that's what we really want. So do we? Yes. Um, and here I think the answer is more mixed, but still no. So I think that the unitary executive theory does get one thing right. Today in the 21st century, we really depend on the president to do a lot more than we used to, right? Essentially devising foreign policy, uh, keeping the nation safe from natural disasters, uh, you know, regulating the economy, et cetera. I mean, the president is a source of policy and like a continual manager of the economy, of, of you know, uh, our health and safety, et cetera. Um, so does that require a more unitary executive? I think in a sense it does and it doesn't. I think that you could achieve, you could you could achieve a kind of constitutional basis for the president we have by accepting that the president is going to be wielding legislative powers, you know? Um, so something like the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921, I think shows this very practical understanding. The president is going to be devising policy and Congress is going to be voting on it, right? In a sense, policy originates with the president and Congress votes on it, which is sort of flipping the original understanding. But I think that's realistic. I think that's good. I think that makes sense. So I think that a, a world where statutes give the president a sort of proactive policymaking initiative, I'm all, all for that. Where I don't support the unitary vision is that I think it's saying um, all these, uh, you know, uh, checks, uh, mechanisms of oversight around the president, you know, the CFPB director, the, the Federal Reserve, they're strangling the executive power. And I think that's wrong. You know, I think that's wrong. I think, I think we need more legislative uh, initiative power for the president, but also more oversight. So, so protect the whistleblowers, protect the inspectors general, et cetera. Yeah, that, that so makes, that's my that, that makes that makes sense to me. Um, so um, I think I may have mentioned this to you in Minnesota. I don't remember. Um, I was really stunned before I became a law professor back in 1990 when I was at the Department of Justice. And um, I was told to put on my jacket, which I didn't usually have at the office and tie, and go upstairs. Upstairs meant the attorney general's office. Okay. But it ended up being the deputy attorney general's office, a guy named George Terwilliger, who is still uh -huh. in the news today representing Donald Trump. In any event, um, a guy named Michael Paulson, who uh, was a professor at Minnesota, now at St. Thomas, and who, with Will Bode, has written this opus about Section 3. Michael Paulson was at OLC at the time. And he and, and we didn't know each other. He was really conservative. I was very progressive. And he and I were told, you guys are going to write a law today. And we were like, what? <laughs> and, and, to, and, and the AG, deputy AG went, yeah, so uh, Congress has prohibited the National Endowment of, of the Arts from funding obscenity. 
but they have left it to the executive branch to define obscenity. You two guys want to be law professors someday. Go in a room, define obscenity. And that became a, regula- a, a binding regulation on the NEA director's authority. No one voted for us. No one knows us. It was clearly a legislative thing. Uh, now, it wasn't, you know, on the scale of importance, depending on how one thinks about culture and, and the NEA, it wasn't, you know, no one's being put in prison. No one, the worst case scenario is no one gets a grant. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. we made a law. And I remember thinking at the time, this is not what I learned in school. I didn't, I didn't know the president makes laws in school, but, you know, it was, it, by the way, the end of that story is it got struck down by a San Diego judge on frivolous grounds, and then the case mooted out on appeal because of the federal statute was repealed. In any event, I, I'm still a little, you know, I'm still a little shocked by that. And then I think about the EPA and HUD and all these other agencies who make, who make laws every day that really do have major you know, major effects. I'm not downplaying the NEA's importance, but it's not as important yeah. as EPA or HUD. Um, what, what do you make of all that? I mean, like Siegel made a law. Nobody voted for Siegel. That seems wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry that your law was so short-lived. It's, it yeah. seemed uh, super plausible. Well, let me just say that, that our definition of obscenity was the Miller test which is the Supreme Court's definition of obscenity. And what this crazy elderly judge in San Diego said was something about the procedures were unconstitutional. I don't remember. Didn't matter. The case went away very quickly. Um, But anyway, I made a law, which always strikes me as weird. What's wrong with that? That you you got to like play play legislator for a day? Yeah, it seems odd, doesn't it? Well, from one point of view, it's not, right? Congress passes a law and they say obscenity. And Congress, you know, people, they're not all lawyers, right? right? So doesn't it make sense for them to write obscenity? What's obscenity? You you and Michael Stokes Paulson, who have presumably (laughs) read your First Amendment cases, you guys tell us what obscenity means. We've got this general ballpark idea. I mean, that's that's kind of a bread and butter theory of delegation. You know, Congress has sort of general goals, but how to carry them out depends on actually knowing the you know the 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 legal the legal nuances right so i think that isn't that that isn't like incompatible with you know what justice kagan in sale law called the schoolhouse rock theory of the separation of powers right right how a bill becomes a law and all that stuff i mean but what you're getting to yeah is the flipping the, the sort of flipping the process kind of idea of it that policy starts in the executive branch and then goes to congress right so robert dahl in I think 67 had this famous observation that today the presidency has become the the engine of the car, Congress is the brakes, right? Um, and I think that, that, you know, to the extent that we're delving in originalism, probably that wasn't the way it, it was intended to work. But I think the question for us is, I think we should be pragmatists about this. What do we lose if you and, uh, you know, if yourself and, and, and Professor Paulson are drafting the laws, well, so long as Congress gets a chance to, you know, right. repeal them or a judge gets their crack at them if they don't like them. Right. So, so obviously, um, I don't think there's a big issue about Paulson and me defining obscenity for purposes of NEA grants. I think playing devil's advocate here, because you and I agree on all these issues, which is boring, but um, playing devil's advocate, <laughs> playing devil's advocate, I, I, but you're the expert on this, I'm not. Playing devil's advocate, I do think you know, some people may have the belief, I don't think it's frivolous, that when Congress says, all right, I'm, I'm giving a crazy example, air pollution is a real problem. Like, we got we to gotta do something about air pollution. But we don't know what the hell to do about it, and we can't, we don't have the time to study it, and we don't have experts on it. So we're going to delegate to the, we're going to set some broad goals, make air pollution less or whatever, and then you, executive branch, figure that out. The you figure it out part for Paulson and me was pretty minor. But the you figure it out part for figure out how to get rid of air pollution or lessen it 
is very, very, I use the word major, obviously leading in to the major questions doctrine. Um, you have no hesitation about that being okay? What are we going to do? I mean, <laughs> we can't expect Congress to be like nuclear physicists right. and bankers right. and, and constitutional lawyers all at the same time. I mean, I think a great example, I think people like to believe that this is a new problem. It started with the New Deal and its yep. alphabet agencies, right? But like the very first Congress uh, was basically lectured to by Alexander Hamilton as the Secretary of the Treasury, right? He's yes. basically like written up a policy of how America needs to settle its debts. And the people on the floor of Congress is like, I have no idea what I'm voting on. You know, <laughs> Hamilton's done all the thinking for us. So we'll just sort of put our name on the dotted line and endorse this policy. I mean, I, I think that the, I mean, yeah, the, there, there could come an extreme point where Congress is so in the dark, so being lectured to by executive agencies that you really worry about democratic consent. Um, but I think you have to, you know, uh, hold fast to the to the idea that if it's them ultimately passing laws, uh, we're still lodging authority in the right place. Okay, so a couple off the wall questions, and I, I say this often during my podcast. You know, I sent you a kind of a list of tentative subjects, and 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 yeah. I always end up veering off of them. And I think that spontaneity is good anyway. So this is related, but so so first, um, I know this is going to be a weird connection to make. But the more the House of Representatives is gerrymandered, which, of course, we know mm -hmm. these days is terrible, both sides, terrible, although Republicans, because of the timing of it, have gotten more advantage of that, generally speaking. But we know the House is gerrymandered terribly. The Senate, by definition, is gerrymandered because it's two senators from every state and California has, you know, 50 times the population of Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Those two things being the case. The Congress really doesn't represent America in a way that maybe the president does and maybe even so. So, you know, Justice Powell wrote a famous dissent in the um, Garcia case, really taking aim at civil servants, saying that they are nameless, faceless people in Washington, D.C. who have no idea what's happening in Oklahoma and Missouri and Alaska. Um, my experience was they acted in good faith and tried to do a pretty good job. But leaving that as Leaving, and I was the Bush administration, a Republican administration. But leaving that, leaving that aside, the Congress seems to me, because of computers and gerrymandering, less responsive to the national will than it used to be. So maybe it's a good thing the president is more kind of responsive. Huh. <laughs> Off the old question. I, Hard yeah, question. I've got a lot of thoughts on this, and I'm trying to wrangle them into sure. something. To I threw this at you. This, I, didn't, I this was not prepared, so I... I Appreciate that. Yeah, no, no, it's great. So, I mean, I think there's something, there's something troubling, but also something practical about the idea that like Congress is inept, divided, yes, yes. Uh, gridlocked. And the filibuster to too. Realize, oh, I should have mentioned the filibuster too. Go ahead. And making it worse on itself with a yes. filibuster, yes. right? Which, yeah, you, you didn't ask me, but I think that they should remove it. Yes. Uh, you know, I think the framers had many ideas of checks and balances, but Congress internally handicapping itself, I don't think was one of them. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's sobering. I think we're still, I think we still can't get away from the fact that Congress is the representative assembly of our government, right? But that said, um, you know, in terms of like practically what our government looks like, yeah, I mean, it looks like, you know, bureaucrats uh, taking the first crack at legislating. And that's partly because Congress lacks information, but it's partly because like, we're desperate. Somebody needs to do something, right? right? So we've seen that a lot with like recent presidents. Um, you know, I remember thinking of President Obama, who kept giving these State of the Union addresses saying, Congress, you need to do something on immigration. And they didn't. 
And so the president took unilateral action and, you know, establishes DACA and DAPA, uh, the clean power program, right? Uh, right? You know, out of the Obama EPA, the Biden student loan program. Um, I think that there's a tension in all these programs. They, they reflect that Congress really is not the site of policymaking. I mean, I personally think Congress needs to, uh, you know, reassert its authority, but I think that's not going to happen without a shift in the, in the political parties. And then the other part of it is this idea of representing the American people. I'm highly suspicious of claims that the president represents the people. And, and partly this is because of my Latin American background. This is a phrase that's used all the time by tin pot dictators to sort of end up doing what they want to. You right. know? So I think the problem is that the president representing the people doesn't cash out into any really meaningful accountability. But that said, you know, the faceless bureaucrats, I think they are unnecessarily, you know, uh, slammed in our popular imagination. Yesterday in my seminar on the on the American presidency, I had my students read Michael Lewis, The Fifth Risk. And it's this book that's full of these like happy characters of like scientists who right. drive in their truck to Norman, Oklahoma, <laughs> to really see how tornadoes uh, devastate right. people's lives. Right. right? So I, I don't think like empirically it's totally wrong that the president or the or the bureaucrats are like unconcerned with public accountability. I think what 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 becomes dangerous is when it's a constitutional theory. Let the president do it because the president represents us. That's an excuse for letting Congress off the hook. Fair enough. Um, um, I, I also uh, fair enough. Um, and I also wonder. So um, I'm often on a podcast with a guy named Pete Dominic, who basically is responsible for any media credibility I have over the last 15 years. And um, he used to say, he used to say all the time, one of the unspoken problems in our country is that members of the House of Representatives, the People's House, have to start running for office again the day they get to. And that's what they do. In fact, he once had a congressperson on who said something like, I spend five hours of, of, of running again for every one hour of work. I actually have to do or something like that. And that does seem to me to be really unfortunate. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I, I, I do. I do think that campaigning gets in the way of governing. Yes. And, and not just because of how much time it takes up. I think they actually work at cross purposes in some ways. Sure. Like if you give a stump speech and you tell your constituents, like, I will not vote for a tax increase. And then you go back to the floor <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, a tax increase, but in exchange for this, and you're like, sorry, I told them I couldn't do it. Um, yeah, I think these like sort of bright lines are preventing our Congress. I think this is another Congress problems. They can't bargain. You know, I, I know we're all sort of grossed out by the idea of like backdoor deals in the smoky room, but I think that's how Congress has to function, actually. And, and, um, and, and actually, I want to, I want to talk about the the back the, the smoky room for a minute in terms of the president. I'm glad you used that phrase. So hmm. I, I I can't find the article, um, but but somebody wrote an article in 1971 or two. I forget when we were transitioning from, and, and if this history is wrong, correct me, it used to be that the political parties basically nominated the president in backroom deals, effectively. Um, I know that mm -hmm. was certainly true, for example, when Justice Douglas wanted to be vice president in nine, in, during World War II, right, right afterwards. Um, all of that was done in the, in the back rooms. Like it wasn't, the, the electors didn't do that. That was done in back rooms. This person predicted that when we took... Uh, when we when we went from the back room to and the smoky room to the primary mm -hmm. system where where the people really do what was going to he said this is like 1972 what was going to happen someday was the demagogue was going to come into power 
because it was the back rooms that kind of kept the demagogues out of power. Once the people get to decide, and he predicted Trump, and not the person, but he literally predicted that kind of person, a, a television savvy media presence who will basically trick the people into, um, you know, thinking a, a television presence is the same thing as being a good president. Do you want to go back to the, first of all, is that history correct? And second of all, should we go back to the smoky rooms? <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, his, the history, to, to my knowledge, is correct. Um, Again, it's it's partly this this topic that we were talking about when you asked me about the unitary executive. Yeah. It didn't used to be the case. Like technology did not permit the president to say, "Hey, go vote for me. I'll deliver you this." Right. Right. Um, the presidential candidates were basically like creatures of their party, and so you would have party leaders get together. First, it was a caucus. This is under the Jefferson administration. It's super small group of just the leaders. Then it becomes a little bit broader. The party convention, kind of what we know, you know, as we know it today, except. Back then in the 19th century, party conventions were actually deliberating on candidates. They weren't just sort of voting on people who had won the primaries, right? Today, the convention is kind of a vestige. Um, so yeah, so I think in the 19th century version of things, right, Trump never gets the nomination. Right. Mitch McConnell kind of maneuvers his troops and Jeb Bush is right. the candidate in exactly. 2016. Exactly. Right? I, I, feel, I feel pretty certain about that. Um, I think this is an uncomfortable topic because in some ways it's requiring us to say like more democracy, but we need to be careful about what we wish for, yes. right? Like primaries are like hailed in the beginning of the 20th century. It's like, oh, finally the people are, are going to have their say in the candidates. And it's all very like great and exuberant and charismatic. But, um, you know, as a lot of the election law people are talking about right now, primaries seem to really facilitate extremist candidates. Um, you know, uh, you know, I heard I was talking with Ned Foley, right, um, yeah. from OSU after the conference. Yeah. And he was talking about how moderate Republicans, somebody like Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, don't run. They don't run because they know they're going to lose a primary challenge. So so I think, you know, this isn't quite my like my sandbox, but I think that people who are sort of smarter than me about designing electoral systems need to really think about what the primary system is doing to the presidency. And I think you're right. It's allowing outsiders without government expertise and with radical policies, uh, you know, to, to make it to the White House. So um, when Trump ran in 2016, one of the things I constantly said, I said two things publicly. One was I'm from New York and I've hated this man forever and you should hate him too. That's the first thing I said. <laughs> the, 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 the second thing, but, more, but the, 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 the more uh, maybe academic point or maybe not was this is the first person in American history to hold the, to, if he wins, I was saying 2016, to hold the office of the presidency who didn't spend, has never spent one second, either in public service or the military. Every other president, my understanding, spent some time in some public service or the military. And I got killed for this by a lot of people and, some, and even some people on the left saying, why do you think the president has to have this experience? And isn't it good to have an outsider and the system is broken and bringing, you know, someone who can shake it up and all that stuff. And I think that's insane. And I think it goes back to this kind of idea that Reagan brought to us, that the federal government is bad, that government is bad for the people. And so it's, you know, um, I mean, Reagan was governor of California, so obviously he, he doesn't fall in the category. You know, he obviously had experience. But um, do you, people really came after me for that. Do you think that we should have a president who, leaving aside Trump, forget that man. Shouldn't someone who's president have some government experience? 
Right. I was going to, I was like, what, what are people you killing you for? You're just stating a fact. Right. Uh, he was the first president to take off. No, I was saying it was date. bad. I was saying we shouldn't have someone be president normatively who has never spent a second. Yeah. In yeah. It's, it's complicated. Okay. Um, That's why you're I, here. Yeah. <laughs> here we go. Um, it's a, it's a dated reference right now, but I remember I was, was struck by the line in Tina Fey's bossy pants, right? A source <laughs> of great political wisdom always. But uh, she says, like, politics is the only area where we can where we where we bless amateurs, right. you know, novices. Right. Right. If you're going to have like open heart surgery, you're not like, <laughs> oh, I want the charismatic outsider who's never done this before. That's but great. really believes. Yeah. You know, yeah. so so I think she's she's certainly right to point to a sort of oddity. Um, and I think you're totally right. I think it's only in a world where we hate the workings of the system that we could possibly say, I want a total amateur who has nothing to do with this. Like, yeah. there's nothing to be learned from decades of public service that could help you as a president. And I think um, I think the best case against that, the best case against your like expertise is that a lot of great presidents haven't had a ton of haven't had a ton of experience. So like Lincoln famously, right, served like what one term as I a congressperson. So. Yeah. Yeah. Obama, also a rookie when he arrived. So I don't think that expertise like can predict presidential performance. But on the other hand, what I do think is critical is, um, well, I think expertise can help. Like certainly like I think Joe Biden having spent decades as a senator helps make him good at certain things, which is legislative coalition building, right? right? This was true of like Lyndon Johnson as well. Um, then somebody like uh, Ronald Reagan, who you mentioned, right? Governors, Former governors tend to have a different skill set that they bring to the presidency. They tend to be like great at communication with the public. They kind of know how to use the tools of office. They can veto strategically, that kind of thing. They know who to appoint, et cetera. So, um, so I think experience kind of can point in like specific parts of the presidential like role that you do well. But above all, I think the most important thing here that, that made Trump anomalous was he didn't have uh, a sense of what the laws were about, a sense of self-restraint, right? Peter Shane in Democracy's chief executive has written about this. It's absolutely critical for somebody to come to office who respects the laws, who respects the spirit that our government has to be conducted in. Fair play, alternating party. You don't use the Department of Justice to prosecute political opponents or your personal enemies. You know, I, so I think a president has to come to the office with a self of, sense of self-restraint and a sense of civicness. And I totally agree with you that like decades of trashing the government allows <laughs> us to believe in outsiders in a way that I think is super dangerous. Well, what, that's, that was really well said. Um, thank you. Um, also, I, I think my point was um, someone who's, I, I, and it killed me, he was running against Hillary Clinton, who has done nothing since Yale Law School in 1973, but worked for the public interest. Um, if you've never, ever, if ever spent a second in government or, 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 or doing some kind of public facing work, um, then I question your motives to be president. And, and I think Trump has proven that. Um, you know, I think other people would, would prove that as well. All right, let's move on for a second. Um, I want to spend a few minutes talking about comparative law because this is something I know very little about. Richard Albert was on this pod a while back. And, and Richard, oh, cool. is, yeah, he's like the dean of, right, of, of U.S. comparative law scholars. And he was awesome. Godfather. Yeah, he the godfather. Everything. I'll tell him you said yeah. that. I like that. Um, the godfather of comparative law professors. Um, and, and I really learned a lot in that, in, that, in that podcast. So, but we didn't talk about this issue I'm going to ask you about. Compared to England, France, Germany, Spain, you know, Western Europe, 
and then other Western countries who we we think of as you know representative democracies in some way similar to ours. Do any of those oh, and, and South America? Too, I mean, anywhere in the world, we, we have a, we have a relative you know relatively free country with freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and some kind of elected president or prime minister. Are these two roles of, you know, we're talking earlier of kind of the person who speaks at funerals and talks after emergencies to make people feel better and the administrative head of state, are they merged in other places like like they are, like it is here? I I don't know the answer to that question. Um, It depends on the political system. Okay. So presidentialism, which is what we have, three branches, the executive branch being run by a president, um, yeah, they're mixed. Um, then you have a s- systems called semi-presidentialism, where you can have a prime minister alongside an elected president, right? Um, and that, in a sense, tries to get at that uh, at that idea. So Germany is an example of that system. The president has certain roles, and they tend not to be the legislative roles. So I think kind of there's there's a couple of separations that your question is getting at, which I think are really important. The head of state pardoning the turkey and welcoming the Boy Scouts and football teams to the office, that's one set of roles versus legislative power or legislative kind of, uh, you know, legislating, policy making, right? Um, that's one kind of division. Another one would be legislation versus administration. And again, I think to the extent that we like the idea of a separation of that, semi-presidentialism, I think, gets at that better, right? You can have a chancellor and a prime minister, something like that. The prime minister is in the muck all day working on legislating, and the chancellor kind of talks to the nation, makes more strictly... And that's Western Europe, right? That's most of the countries in Western Europe, right? Yeah, I guess that's right. I guess that's right. Yeah. I mean, so the U.S. is kind of... um, The U.S there's people who have written about the U.S. Constitution as a model for other countries. And so most of Latin America modeled their constitutions on the U.S. Right. Uh, you have a president that combines both the head of state and the head of government functions. Okay. Um, that kind of occasioned a whole lot of uh, scholarly literature on whether presidentialism is dangerous and prone to like military coups and backsliding. And, and a lot of, you know, that, that thesis has been criticized. It depends on the political parties. It depends on the economy, et cetera. Um, but there's some kind of ideas that this fusing of responsibilities makes presidentialism distinctly uh, challenging. Right. Yeah, I, I, I feel like those, as we said earlier, those are two, two different skill sets. I think Western Europe does that better than us, although they have the, the, the rise of many, many political parties in those countries distorts the whole comparison, I, I think, um, our two-party system. Um, all right, let's leave presidential power behind for a moment. You wrote an article about the failure of progressive formalism. Now, let me just make clear my prior, since I'm a legal realist at the beginning, I'm the anti-formalist. I I think Posner had it all correct on these issues. Um, I think formalism is a silly cover for values. That's my predilections. Um, What do you mean by progressive formalism and what do you mean by it failed? Um, So there's a specific historical version of what I meant by progressive yeah. formalism. And then there's a kind of more generic portable version of it. Okay. Um, also with a historic version of it. Um, basically, it's a backlash to an overgrown Supreme Court. Yeah. You know, sound sound familiar? Yes. There, there's a, I, I write about the progressive era. I'm sort of mildly obsessed with it. And, and part of the reason is just I feel like 
the more you read, the more it's like looking in the mirror, you see these parallels between then and today, right? The progressive era is this moment where we have industrialization, we have the rise of corporations, we have all of this anxiety about private power, inequality, right? And so people panic and they're looking to government to do a lot of things. And I think the court of the progressive era also panics. It sees all this brand new legislation and it tries to shut it down. So partly I see progressive formalism, what I'm calling that, as a backlash to the court, right? Um, and so I think the idea is, is basically this, is this notion that leaving constitutional meaning in the hands of the judiciary is undemocratic. And so we really start to see that, you know, with backlash, the Lochner era, of course, backlash to Lochner. I think it comes earlier, right? There's a case where the Supreme Court strikes down the federal income tax yeah. as unconstitutional. 1895, it's called Pollock. Um, and that's partly why we get um, the 16th Amendment right to legalize a national income tax because it's because the supreme court like waddled in and said that you know the government had no power to do this in any case i'm sorry so, i'm sorry so to interrupt, but they may do it again this term in a different way but in a very serious way there's an income tax case this term that i'm told has unconscionable implications for the world if it goes a certain way i don't want to get sidetracked but that case, there's a case yeah this no term. no but yeah no but again i just i think the parallels are just uncanny yeah. so in any case what i mean by progressive formalism is this is basically this idea of uh, you know popular democracy saying we're going to take back constitutional meaning away from courts. That's really what I mean. And and why do I call it formalism? I think it's this hope that you can use text to bind a court, right? And so I know as a legal realist, you think that's a fiction. I'm not totally sure if I think it's a fiction. I think it might be a fiction, but at least I want to say that in this period of American history, it was like a democratic hope. Right. This idea that you could you know, um, give the people a national referendum that would allow them to overturn Supreme Court decisions that they hated and that ultimately what the Constitution means lies with the people. And so I call this formalism because I think they thought that you could use text written by people to bind judges, to hold judges to that meaning, you know, to that's, like eliminate judicial discretion. That's fascinating. <laughs> and of course, that's my wheelhouse because... Um, what I've, I wrote a whole book on this and I've been very public about it. I, I don't think, I think so many of the questions we ask judges to answer, they, 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 based on text, they, they just can't answer. What I do think they understand, I do think judges understand though, are presumptions and burdens of proof. I do think judges uh -huh. understand that. So my, my Supreme Myth suggests that whereas equal protection, due process, free speech establishment, that text is not going to bind anybody and never has. And that's why we keep changing law. And as Posner said, if changing judges changes law, do we know what law is? But my solution is something like the clearly, like the clearly erroneous rule that appellate judges use for district court factual findings. If, we, if that was, and that was Alexander Hamilton's rule in number 78, there has to be an irreconcilable variance between a statute and the constitution. That's his phrase, okay. irreconcilable variance, before a court would strike it down. I do think judges understand burdens of proof and presumptions. And so Mark, so you were talking about constitutionalism outside the courts. Of course, Mark Tushnet, who was kind of my mentor growing up, um, is most famous for that idea. Um, I, I, I do think we can get, we have a better chance of getting there, not by interpreting the text, but by adding some kind of rule like appellate judges have, that if they're going to say a district court's findings were clearly erroneous, they have to write a different opinion. And, and, and it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard to write that opinion. Tushnet once said, even as a crit, some verbal formulations are harder to evade than others. He literally said that. And, and people thought he was being inconsistent with his kind of 
critology. But, yeah. I, but I don't think so. Yeah. I think he's right. So do you agree with that? That, that that's not right. That, that, that you do. Okay. That kind oh, of, go ahead. No, no, I was agreeing with it with a touch that point. Right? No, my, my point is that some 35 years of age. Right. Right. Um, what you're, my point is, if we had a clearly erroneous standard for constitutional law, we, in fact, would have less laws overturned, dramatically less laws overturned, because it's more work. And just as a practical matter on the ground, it's a lot more work and takes a lot more creativity and imagination to meet that standard. You think I'm crazy? No, I agree with you. I, I think that you're. this is something kind of like Thayerian minimalist yes. Uh, yes. judicial review, right? Yes. I think that's compatible with, with what I talked about with, with the idea of progressive formalism. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think you're totally right. Equality, due process. I don't think these terms bind judges. Right. I'm, I'm a big fan of your book, Supreme Myths. I told you when we met Thank in Minnesota. You. I assign it to students in my con law class who are like, I hate the Supreme Court and I don't know what to do with myself. And I'll be like, go, go read Eric's book. It'll well, make you feel a lot better. You You're not that. alone in this, in this angst. <laughs> thank, so, thank you so yeah, um, but, but you know, so you're saying that one way it, to, to sort of cabin this out of control court is by imposing a rule of interpretation that requires them to not strike things down unless they're completely like outrageous, right? I guess the question that would be a statute. Um, no, that would, be I mean, that would be unconstitutional. It would, it, would, it would take a constitutional amendment, I think. Okay, okay. I, yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, <laughs> Congress might tie it to the spending power. That, that, you know, you can do what you want your way, or you can have law clerks and do it our way. Those, those are your choices. Well, defund your court unless you read laws in a minimalist way so i mean i'm like i i think that would help okay (laughs) i support that yeah um yeah no i i'm i'm a fan of minimal judicial review as well i didn't know that so Um, i'm glad we're on the same ship there um well to your credit you know you've been saying it right for years even when roe versus wade was still on the books um, fortunately, I'm young enough that I never had to take that controversial position. Right. I can just. Uh... Right. Well, I, I appreciate that. No, I am. But... Um, so we're taping this on Wednesday after the Tuesday election day where um, 11 states, I think it was, 11 for 11 voted for um, abortion type rights. Um, and I, I do feel like I, I have a lot of I told you so's I can hand out, but I'm not going to do that to you or, or, or here. I want We only like five minutes left. I want to change subjects real quickly. Um, I do think your idea and that article, Progressive Formalism, is really important, and I'm really glad you wrote that. Um, all right, let's leave aside con law for a second. It turns out that you are, I think, tied with tied 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 as the most junior person I've had over a hundred and less senior person over 106 podcasts. You and my colleague yeah. Anthony Christ, I think, are around the same places in your career. Um, everyone else has been tenured full professor chair type people. Um, so I want to ask. Well, I'm honored. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I was really, I'm, I'm impressed by your work, and I was really impressed with you in Minnesota. Obviously, um, I want to ask you this question about legal education. It seems to me that um, over my 33 years, I've really seen a siloing in the last few years, where ACS students went in one direction, FedSoc students went in another direction, and that I mean, even post law school, I mean at the elite schools especially. The ACS students went to liberal judges. The FedSoc students went to conservative judges. Um, although many schools do have joint, and we do, we have a lot of them in Georgia State. We don't have those issues. But a lot of schools don't and have joint programs of ACS and FedSoc. And I, and I don't know what it's like at Wash U, 
Um, I'm assuming your faculty like mine is overwhelmingly liberal and, and, le and, and leftist. And it's my view that the overwhelmingly liberal nature of the academy was one of the things that gave Federal Society its success. And I kind of want to scream, can we all just get along and learn <laughs> and not retreat to our corners? It wasn't this way in 1995. It really wasn't. I mean, we had debates and disputes, but it wasn't siloed like it is today. And you're much newer to this. So I'm curious what your perspective is on that. Mm, that's a tough question. I know. I kind of just want to say I'm new to the Academy and like way more. Okay, you, know, you can duck it if you, you're no, not to duck it if you want. No, but and, but some you know, part of this comes from, you know, I, like I consider myself a legal historian and yeah. sometimes I'll read things that give me these clues that it wasn't always this way, yes. you know, yes. right? Um, like, I don't know, when the APA came down, there was actually like mixed opinions from the law schools, right. you know, right. about the, the statute. The Administrative Procedure Act she's referring to, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't think it's been true historically that law schools were overwhelmingly liberal. I think partly what's happening is that we're mirroring the trajectory of our two political parties. Right. Um, like, I think that, like, if you're an expert and a wonk and a technocrat and whatever, which I think lawyers do tend to be right now, you have more of a home in the Democratic Party than you do in the Republican Party. Right. Uh, and I think that's partly because the Republican Party has sort of willingly picked up populism. But I think populism definitely used to be a Democratic uh, Party tenant way before. So, you know, I think in the New Deal era, for example, like academics were pretty neatly split between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. So so partly, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that's like saying like it's, it's not our fault. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not even I'm just describing it. Um, I'm not necessarily judging it. Um, I, I do think in just over three decades, it has changed dramatically. And um, I, I, it, it saddens me. I mean, it, it does. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll say this publicly, I probably shouldn't. Um, we had a conservative constitutional law professor back in the 90s, he retired sometime in the 2000s. And, and my school is not that anxious to replace it. And we don't have any conservative public law folks. We have some private law conservatives. Like you're saying, we have some private mm -hmm. law conservatives. We don't have any public yeah. law conservatives. And I've tried and I've tried to get my faculty to hire them. Um, I think it's really important for law schools to have both. I'm not sure they do today. Do you have a outspoken conservative public law faculty member on your faculty? Well, that's what you mean by outspoken. Okay. I, I mean, I think that we have, a, I think we have a decent like survey of, of different ideas on the faculty. Yeah, I don't know. I think the way I think about this is it, it's a challenging question. Like, what are we as law professors supposed to be neutral about? Or, or, you know, what is it okay to have political disagreement about? I mean, you said the role of good government earlier in this conversation. Like, I don't think as a law professor, I need to be neutral about whether good government I I is important for the nation. Like, right. I'm, I'm going to take a stand in front of that. That doesn't, I don't think that means big government. Right. right. But I think that means competent government, professional government, right? Uh, people of integrity and good ethics being in government. So I think partly it's it's that to the extent that I see kind of the core of the Republican Party moving away from an idea like that, I say, OK, I'm, I'm completely alienated as right. a student of American history or as a law professor, you know, but that doesn't mean that, like, I would never have supported, like, Dwight Eisenhower or something like that. Right. I, I think we're in a really weird moment. I, I think politically, like, expertise is kind of lodging right now with the Democratic Party. And truthfully, I don't think that's a good way for our country to be. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. No, I, I agree with all of that. All right. Um, I guess my very last 
question. Um, and it's a weird one. You don't have to answer it. Um, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Like what, 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 what do you want to be known for, if anything? And what, are, what, what would you like, because you are an outstanding young scholar, and I think you have an incredibly bright future. Um, where do you want to be in 10 years? Um. <laughs> career-wise, career-wise. Uh, yeah. Um, I'd like to write some books. Yeah. I'd like to, I think, I think what I'd like to, let, let me move away from the medium, uh, but I, I'd like to change the way people think about the presidency. I think some of the conversations, some of the questions we were talking about before, uh, you know, you and I mentioning again, your statute, right? I think we'd be better served. Our, our sort of idea of the constitution would be better served by being more realistic about how enamored we are of presidential power. And so I feel like right now, like the schoolhouse rock idea is still prevailing. It's yes. how civics is taught. You know, AP government is taught around this idea. Like we've outgrown this idea. Yes. And so I'd, I'd love to in 10 years be known as a person who's kind of pioneering a conversation about making the constitutional law of the president more realistic, more permissive on the one hand of all the legislative stuff that we expect the president to do, but also more like comfortable with mechanisms of accountability that, you know, the unitary executive theory, among other things, thinks is unconstitutional. So I would like to help pioneer an idea of the presidency as both more empowered, but also more constrained. Well, my prediction is 10 years from now, I'll be on a beach reading your work and seeing how you are <laughs> influencing um, how we think about the presidency. Thank you so much for doing this. I really learned a lot and enjoyed this conversation so much. And thanks for coming on. Oh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Thanks. Quite Andrew. an honor. Thanks.